When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Tonight on The Readout. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, oh, stop it. Is that your solution? Every poll. No, no, sit down. Sit down. Okay. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Okay. Okay. Sit down, please. Let's get ready to rumble. Three days to a possible shutdown. And what were Republicans doing today? Oh, shoving each other in the hallway, screaming at their colleagues and childishly challenging committee witnesses to fight. Plus, tens of thousands of people gathered on the National Mall for the March for Israel as we're learning new details about a possible deal to free some hostages. But we begin tonight with Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis asking the judge in Donald Trump's Georgia election interference case to put a protective order in place. It comes as videos of confidential interviews between the DA's office and some former Trump Trump co-defendants were leaked to the media. In her filing for the emergency motion, Willis says this was intentionally done by someone from the defense and was, quote, clearly intended to intimidate witnesses in this case, subjecting them to harassment and threats prior to trial. The videos, which were obtained by ABC News and The Washington Post, but not NBC News, were from witnesses Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesborough, and Scott Hall, who have all taken plea deals in the case. And those videos include stunning new revelations about Donald Trump's alleged plot to hang on to power. Bonnie Willis, speaking today at a Washington Post event, said this was the exact reason she originally filed for a protective order back in September. My team and um, the particular case that those got out, we had already filed um, to have a protective order where discovery in the case would not get out. Um, So surprising, no, disappointing, yes. In fact, today uh, from here, I made sure I wasn't late for this event, but I was with my team making sure that an emergency motion got filed so that that motion we had already filed gets heard immediately um, because it, I think it's, I'm not happy that it was released and that you and your colleague got to do your story. The judge in the case, Scott McAfee, has scheduled a hearing regarding the emergency protective order for tomorrow afternoon. Meanwhile, in one of Donald Trump's other legal cases, the New York civil fraud trial, Trump has continued his unhinged rants against New York Attorney General Letitia James and Judge Arthur and Goron, including reposting a call for them to be placed under citizen's arrest. Now, perhaps this will be considered par for the course for Trump, if not for the fact that we know that if Trump were to reenter the White House, he would use a second term to exact revenge against his long list of perceived enemies. Joining me now is Neil Katyal, professor of law at Georgetown University, former acting solicitor general and MSNBC legal analyst. Doug Jones, former U.S. senator from Alabama and a distinguished senior fellow with the Center for American Progress. And Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general, MSNBC legal analyst and co-host of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald 
Trump. Um, let me just go around the table and let each of you comment on the release of this video, the release of these videos um, and the request of a protective order with the claim that this was done to intimidate these witnesses. Neil, I'll start with you. Yeah. So first of all, I just think the evidence is so important because really what these tapes show is how the prosecutors are going to tear down Trump's defense piece by piece. They show what Trump was told, exactly when he was told it, and exactly how he planned to ignore all of it so he could stay in power. So I think it's pretty devastating for Trump. That said, I don't think there's a chance in the world that this was leaked by the prosecution. You've seen Bonnie Willis, she's a complete pro. She was, you know, she went to the judge months ago and said, make sure that this kind of evidence doesn't get out into the wild. The judge never granted that request and now there's that hearing tomorrow. But Bonnie Willis had everything to lose by these kinds of tapes coming out because it really does scare witnesses from coming forward because look at what's happening to Jenna Ellis and everyone else on social media today. They're being attacked by the MAGA crowd and the like. So it's scary. Whereas the defendants didn't have much to lose. I mean, the evidence against them was going terribly. So many of them had already pled guilty, including people in Donald Trump's inner circle. So this is all about, if you had to play the odds, it's much more probabilistic that the defendants who had a lot to lose were the leakers and not the uh, prosecutors who have the wind at their back. And you can, you know, Doug Jones, this, this feels exactly like you can understand why. Donald Trump uh, is attacking um, the prosecutors in his other cases, attacking their, 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 their clerks. And now, I saw it too on social media, people are going after Jenna Ellis, going after the people in these states. And they knew that. I mean, look, this has been a, a, a pattern for a long time now. It is not just in his cases. This was a pattern when he was president, uh, when he could say these things, what I call the dog whistle uh, comments. Mm -hmm. He can say them. He can have somebody else. In this case, he had, he just put out there, I have got an enemy. I've got someone who is opposing me. And folks are going to take that. That's the sad thing about this. There are people that are out there that are seeing this who think that I've got to do something about this. I've got to stop this person from getting my guy. And it also makes, you know, it poisons the jury pool. Yes, they've seen, they've had access to this. Uh, they also, you know, for right or wrong, they will take uh, what they've seen and they may be, you know, seeing things that are not going to be admissible in evidence. Right. Um, so it could, you know, it could actually hurt the prosecution. It could actually help the prosecution, depending. But it's not the way it's supposed to yeah. be. Right. Yeah. Evidence is supposed to be presented at trial according to the rules of evidence. But I think also here we have the issue of a jury potentially themselves being afraid. Right. We've had That's that right. already come out when the names of the grand jurors were actually disclosed because apparently in Georgia, that's the yeah. process. Yeah. And, you know, some of those people uh, were the subject to attacks. We have, uh, I think it'll be important here to keep the jury anonymous if that's possible under Georgia law. And if I were Bonnie Willis, I'd be seeking that. Yeah. Because anyone who comes close, whether you're a witness, a prospective witness, a juror, you, you are putting yourself at risk yeah. because right. when Donald Trump calls out the mob on you, they respond. And, you know, he knows this. He's knows this for years. He's used it. His victimhood narrative, weaponization of the Department of Justice, weaponization of the Georgia Department of Justice. Yeah. This is his narrative. And now it also puts all of these people in the crosshairs of Donald Trump. Now that they're testifying against him. They flipped on him. And a lot of them are the important, most important witnesses. Let's play Sidney Powell. Um, and she gets to one of the key questions of whether or not Donald Trump knew he lost the election. Here's Sidney Powell. Were you ever around when someone 
anyone told uh, Donald Trump that he had lost the election? Oh, yeah. Who? Uh, Pat Cipollone, Eric Hirschman, Derek Lyons all thought he'd lost. Was that in the December 18th meeting? Yes. What, what was um, President Trump's reaction when, I guess, this cadre of advisors would say you lost? It was like, uh, well, they would say that and then they'd walk out and he'd go, see, this is what I deal with all the time. Uh, Neil, that's an important revelation. Yeah, absolutely. There's a debate about whether the prosecution in Georgia and the prosecution in Washington, D.C., Jack Smith's case, need to actually show that Trump believed he had lost. Um, You know, that's a tough legal debate one way or the other that I don't want to bore our viewers with. But I think what this evidence shows is even under the higher standard that the prosecutors need to show that, They can show it, that they have people in the room where it happened, where Trump was told, look, you lost. And when you couple the clip you just played, Joy, with what Jenna Ellis's clip was yesterday, which was, quote, the boss is not going to leave under any circumstances. We're going to stay in power. Um, You know, that's all just a demonstration that Trump wanted to stay in power no matter what. Mm -hmm. He didn't care whether he, quote, won or lost the election. Yeah. Let's play another Sidney Powell. This is um, she was you know, they established that she understood she was going to be appointed um, to be special counsel, even though she didn't have security clearance, he would get her one. But then the question is, what would she do? Here is what she would do as special counsel. What was um, President Trump's sense of what you would do as special counsel? I guess he assumed and I would have thought that I would have looked at uh putting into effect a provision of 13848 that would have allowed the machines to be secured in four or five states. <laughs> Mary, they were going to take the machines. Yeah. I mean, that's madness. I'm madness. Right. And, you know, you know, we're starting to hear similar madness when we hear about Project 2025, right? Yes. Insurrection Act on day one, yes. et cetera. And so one would think that we would have sort of learned from this experience yeah. and that uh, there would not be any lawyers willing to go down the road that Sidney Powell was willing to go down. And right. I'm not sure that's the case. The other thing I would note, you know, when we were looking at those clips of uh, December 18th and those statements about the meetings on December December 18th and, and people in his his most closest White House counsel telling him he'd lost. Remember, that's one day before his tweet. Yeah. Be there. Be yes. wild. Right. Yes. One day before that. So he's been told. Yeah, it's over. And he's calls he calls them up. Yeah. And, and by the way, uh, to, to go back just a little bit to what you're saying and also what Neil was saying, Dan Scavino is who ran Donald Trump's Twitter. Right. It's who ran his social media. He is the person that Jenna Ellis says is the one she had the conversation with about the boss isn't leaving. Well, and Where does that put him? Because he was one of the people who could have been charged with contempt of, of Congress. Sure. He wasn't. And the question is, did he get a deal? And is he going to be an unwitting? It's possible. We don't know. We're not going to know that for a, a little bit. But you go back to, you know, what was said months earlier. Uh, by folks close to Donald Trump, you know, his his whole thing is going to be deny that he lost, stay in power. We have seen that time and time again. Yep. And what's really sad to me about this is that and, and it is something I think instinctively a lot of people and a lot of lawyers have known all along that 
Donald Trump wanted to find a lawyer that would tell him what he wanted. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing that we're seeing here. He's got really good lawyers. Uh, I may disagree with from a political standpoint, sure. but they're e- excellent lawyers. Mm-hmm. Pat Cipollone is a great lawyer. And for them to be able to talk to him and tell them and just say, no, I'm going to shove you out and I'm going to find Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell <laughs> and Rudy Giuliani, yeah. who will tell me, not only tell me what I want to hear, yeah. they'll go to court and tell that judge what I want them to say, whether there's any truth to it or not. And they'll seize voting machines. And they'll seize voting voting machines. machines. They'll do whatever it takes. And that's why you see those lawyers that are defendants in this case. And and Neil, I mean, there was even the part where, you know, Sidney Powell admits, you know, that the reason that she was listened to and Pat Cipollone wasn't is she was telling Donald Trump was saying, we see what I have to deal with because, you know, they won't tell me what I want to hear. I I would like to ask your comment on the fact that Fonnie Willis has now said that the trial uh, in the Georgia case maybe may not really happen until 2025. That is a little frightening uh, because it seems that we will know who the president is by then. And it could be the guy who wants to jail people like Fonnie Willis and put them in insane asylums and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, it's very disappointing when Ms. Willis said that today, because I've always felt this trial, you know, the evidence is all there. It's been turned over to the defense. Um, This trial should be much more ready to go than it is. And these delays, I think, are unconscionable um, and wrong. And I think that if this happens and a trial happens um, and takes place in 2025, if on the off chance that Donald Trump wins, he's going to have a serious constitutional argument that a state prosecutor can't interfere with the nation's business and lock up uh, the president of the United States. That's a serious constitutional argument that well-respected constitutional scholars believe is right, regardless of who the president is. Um, And so there's this whole thing about how presidents can't interfere with ongoing criminal cases in the states. And that's generally right under our doctrine of federalism. But it's also a very viable argument that Trump can nullify or at least put the prosecution on hold if he actually is president. And he is 77 years old. And when he, if he were to be president again, he would get out when he was 80, if he left at all. And that is also, unfortunately, with this guy, a big if. Neil Katyal, former uh, Senator Doug Jones, and Mary McCord, thank you all very much. Up next, Speaker Johnson is relying on the help of Democrats to keep the government open. But all is not well in his clown car caucus. They are so dysfunctional that they are actually physically fighting each other. Seriously. Much more on that next. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
The House averted a government shutdown today with just three days to spare. Once again, Democrats stepped in to provide the votes, passing new Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson's short-term plan to fund the government 336 to 95. The plan will extend funding for half of the government until January 19th and the other half through February 2nd. And I'm just going to pretend that that makes any sense as a way to fund the $27 trillion government of the whole United States. I will also note that Johnson is not facing calls to remove him as speaker for relying on Democrats for the votes to pass the baby funding bill, even though doing the self-same thing cost Kevin McCarthy the gavel a mere six weeks ago. Go figure. But lingering tensions over that explain some of the meltdown since hostility was the word of the day on Capitol Hill. House Republican Tim Burchett, who voted to remove Kevin McCarthy as speaker, accused McCarthy of deliberately elbowing him in the kidney while he was being interviewed. It's just a little different the way people react in Tennessee than they do in California. In Tennessee, if you've got a problem with somebody, you take it to them face to face. I guess in Southern California, where he's from, you take a cheap shot at somebody from behind. <laughs> For his part, Kevin McCarthy said he didn't hit Burchett intentionally. And in a totally mature way, McCarthy added, if I kidney punched him, he'd be on the ground. Stop it all off, Matt Gates filed an ethics complaint against McCarthy over the whole thing. And things also went off the rails in a House oversight hearing when Republican chair James Comer called Democrat Jared Moskowitz a smurf over report that Comer did the same thing that he wants to impeach President Biden for, giving his brother a loan. But since testosterone is a hell of a drug, the macho man antics spilled over to the Senate. Former MMA fighter turned Oklahoma Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen tried to throw down with the president of the Teamsters during a committee hearing. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, hold, stop it. Is that your solution every poll? No, no, sit down. Sorry, Eric, sit down. Okay, you. You know, you're a United States senator. Sit down. Oh, okay, okay. Sit down, please. Who, <laughs> oh, Lord? Joining me now is Congressman Rokana of California. Congressman, I feel constrained to ask you before we start this, uh, this uh, interview would you like to fight? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Joy, I'm, I'm happy to report that I made it to the camera unscathed. <laughs> I, I didn't know that we were in the 1800s uh, with people challenging each other to duels, but I'm, I'm glad Bernie Sanders stood up to re restore yes. some decorum. But here's the thing that's not getting covered. You know what we were voting on in there? The Republicans literally had amendments to say that they want to zero out the National Institute of Health, no cancer research. They want to zero out all student financial aid. They want to zero out all math and science education. Their agenda is so extreme, so dangerous. Dangerous, and that's what really we need to focus on. And why is it, do you think, that um, Speaker Johnson was able to get away with passing a clean mini funding bill, which I think it's ridiculous to fund the government, honestly, through February in two halves. I think it's silly. But he did get something done that pushes the, kicks the can. Why do you think he's getting away with it when Kevin McCarthy couldn't? 
Troy, you're asking the impossible to provide <laughs> reasonable explanation for the actions of the Republican caucus. I, I, you can have expert after expert, and I don't think anyone <laughs> would answer that. But I, I think it shows that a lot of the grievance against McCarthy was personal, and it yeah. didn't have as much to do uh, with the substance. And again, it's the Democrats staying unified, being the adults in the room, funding government, and it's the Republicans who want to cut basic services. You know, it- the thing is, is that is that the core of the fight? Because it does seem to me that the the arguments of the far right, I guess they're all right, far right, against all of these funding bills is that they actually don't want to fund any of this. They don't want to fund, as you said, Head Start and preschool funding. And they don't I guess they don't even want to do roads and bridges. What have they communicated so that the Democratic caucus understands what they do want to pay for? They have not. They just want to cut things. And I think part of the challenge is, Joy, these are such extreme, ridiculous proposals. Literally, they have amendments. We want to make the NIH director $1 salary, Department of Education that gives money for special needs kids $1 salary, that the Democrats almost think it's so ridiculous we don't need to uh, argue against it. But we need to let the American people know what's at stake, particularly in 2024. You have a Republican Party that wants to cut science, that wants to cut cancer research, that wants to cut education, that wants to make cuts in Social Security, that wants to make cuts in Medicare, and you have a Democratic Party that is standing up to fund the basic social safety net that has had, this country has had since the New Deal. So that's really the choice of this election. Let me play for you, uh, Matt Gates, who started all of this by doing the motion uh, to vacate against Kevin McCarthy before. Here he is explaining why it's different for Mike Johnson. There's a fundamental difference here between Johnson and McCarthy. McCarthy had seven months. Uh, Johnson's only had a few weeks. Mike Johnson and Kevin McCarthy both promised us a path to single-subject spending bills. In seven months of Kevin McCarthy being speaker, he only delivered one of them. If Mike Johnson is only able to deliver, uh, you know, one of them over seven months, then he would likely well, face Mike a motion Johnson to vacate too. Single-subject spending bills. Please explain to our audience what that is. Well, what that means is that they want to vote on one spending issue at a time. They don't want to link education funding with Ukraine funding. But look, funding government is complex. Uh, It's a trillion dollar budget, trillions of dollar budget. You can't just say we're going to fund everything one one piece at a time for every vote. The the concerning thing about Matt Gaetz's comments here is it it makes it seem that uh, Johnson's on a timeline. And I once said the question is whether British prime ministers were going to last longer (laughs) or House Republican speakers. I was joking. And now I think, you know, it's a real question. I mean, the question is how long till they get the next person? And head of lettuce usually beats all of them Uh, because seven months (laughs) is actually not a long time. Is it, it, it? It must be mad making for you to be in a House of Representatives where the timeline for whether a speaker can remain is seven months. Speaker Pelosi was speaker for many, many, many years. Most speakers last for years. Matt Gates has literally said essentially Mike Johnson has seven months to reduce spending to each bill, everything one at a time, which is madness. 
it's madness. And it is reducing spending that is going to hurt working families. As costs have gone up, people say, okay, the grocery bills are high and rents are high. We get it as Democrats. And we've got policies to help put more money in their pockets. We've got policies to cut their costs, to provide childcare, to provide education, to help with medical debt. And the Republicans are saying all the government assistance that you currently have, whether it is education funding, whether it is uh, funding for Social Security, Medicare, we want to take it away. That's really the choice. It has been the choice since Newt Gingrich tried it in the 1990s. It was the same choice when Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan tried it. And now it's the same choice on steroids. And people need to start paying attention to their votes. It, they want to dismantle the United yeah. States government. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, who thankfully is a mature adult who would not challenge someone to a duel and is actually wants to do his job. Uh, Congressman, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up. Thank you. Coming up next, a stunning new book delves into Trump's disturbing mindset during his last few months of office and his ongoing quest for vengeance, making it clear that another Trump term would do irreversible damage to the country. My conversation with the author of that book, Jonathan Carl, is next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, Practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Donald Trump's campaign rhetoric has grown increasingly dangerous and dictatorial. What he would unleash on America is a veritable nightmare that he previews daily via social media posts, glossy campaign videos, and frenetic campaign speeches. ABC's Jonathan Carl has known Trump since the 1990s and has covered him extensively. In his new book, Tired of Winning, Carl lays out in disturbing detail elements about Trump's presidency with interesting new insights into the last few months in office and how that period tells us so much about what we should expect from Trump if he returns to the White House. In the book, we learn how disconnected from reality Trump is and how he is constantly looking for affirmation, allegiance, and vengeance. One particular character plays a key role in enabling Trump's worst instincts. John McEntee, who Carl describes as Trump's essential man, in that role, McEntee forged a presidential directive about the withdrawal from Afghanistan with zero oversight. McEntee, who has no legal expertise, also found justification for Vice President Pence to reject the 2020 election results via a half-hour Google search and delivered it to Trump, even though he knew it was apples to oranges. He was also tasked with removing all so-called infidels from the Trump White House, and would lead the charge in a second Trump administration because he's been tasked with a lead role in the Trump Project 2025. The book also tells us just how far Trump is willing to go to win. 
At one point during the 2022 election, he urged Georgia Senate candidate Herschel Walker to falsely accuse his opponent, Senator Raphael Warnock, of pedophilia. Most telling, though, is this quote that Carl got from a high-level individual who served in the White House who has not publicly commented on the president. He told Carl that Trump lacks any shred of human decency, humility, or caring. He is morally bankrupt, breathtakingly dishonest, lethally incompetent, and stunningly ignorant of virtually anything related to governing, history, geography, human events, or world affairs. He is a traitor and a malignancy in our nation and represents a clear and present danger to our democracy and the rule of law. Not subtle at all. Joining me now is Jonathan Carl, chief Washington correspondent for ABC News and co-anchor of This Week with George Stephanopoulos. He is the author of Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party, which is out today. Jonathan, it is good to see you virtually. Um, your book uh, definitely represents the uh, sort of subtitle of our show, which is Scaring is Caring. This is scary stuff here. But I want you to start um, with kind of where we started, uh, where I started tonight. John McEntee, talk about him a little bit and the Rockettes and the Dungeons and Dragons group. What is that and who is he? Yeah, McEntee is somebody who was there at the very beginning of the Trump campaign in 2016. In fact, way back, the very first uh, book I wrote, Front Row at the Trump Show, I talked about walking into an empty Trump campaign headquarters in Trump Tower because they only had about a handful of people working there. And the first person I met was actually John McEntee, who very earnest, young, he had just left a job as a uh, on the desk at Fox News. And so he was there at the inception. And uh, he was a former quarterback at the University of Connecticut and somebody Trump liked for a lot of reasons. I think partly because he looked the part. Good-looking young guy, a little taller uh, than, than, than most of the other staffers. By the end of the Trump presidency, he was actually appointed to the head of presidential personnel. Barely 30 years old, he was in charge with the hiring and firing and vetting of all political appointees throughout the executive branch. And he used that position to root out Trump appointees, Republicans, People working for Trump who uh, were deemed insufficiently loyal. Well, now John McEntee is working for Project 2025 out of the Heritage Foundation, which is there to set up the next Trump administration. And uh, first and foremost, it's about finding people that will be completely and totally loyal to Donald Trump. And uh, you know, th- I think this is a, a very important thing to understand uh, that the next Trump administration, if there is one, will be more extreme and have fewer guardrails than anything we saw in the first Trump administration. And, and what did you learn about what it is that they want to do? Because there's some of the things that you report that are in- truly disturbing. I mean, Donald Trump yeah. not taking it negatively when it seemed that Angela Merkel, the former um, chancellor of Germany, who really apparently despises him. I think we kind yeah. of could see that. Um, but that he tried to convince himself or convince others that she really liked him and took as a compliment her comparison of him to Hitler. So yeah. what is it that they want to do? Yes, yeah, that's a remarkable scene where Trump, to a very senior Republican ally of Trump, is describing how, you know, Merkel, she's told me, she says, your crowds, your crowds are so incredible. There's only one person in all of history that's gotten crowds like yours. Only one. 
<laughs> it's the chancellor of Germany. We know exactly who she's talking about. It's about retribution. I mean, it, plain and simple. And this is Donald Trump is himself has said this. I think, Joy, I think that and I know you have, have focused on this uh, on, on your show. Uh, but I think there has been far too little focus into what Donald Trump is saying as a presidential candidate right now in his own words about what he wants to do. It is about retribution. He says, point blank, I am your retribution. If you come after me, he says, I'm coming after you. He's talked about using the powers of the presidency, if he has an opportunity to do it again, to go after his enemies. And by the way, he's not just talking about his political enemies uh, in, in, in the Democratic Party. He's talking about Republicans uh, who have been insufficiently faithful and loyal to him. He's talking about Republicans who have dared uh, to, to stand up for him on things as basic as whether or not the 2020 election was a legitimate election. Uh, you, you write about, um, and the reason I ask about this is because I would like you, you've covered Donald Trump a long time to talk yeah. a little bit about his mental state. Um, you write about the fact that Mike Pompeo, Steve Mnuchin, Betsy DeVos, all far right wing Republicans yeah. at some point discussed the 25th amendment regarding Trump, uh, that Mitch McConnell spearheaded a move to ban Trump from the inauguration, um, that he threatened to run as a, an independent third party candidate and had to be threatened by Ronna Romney McDaniel, the RNC, not to do it. Um, but the 25th Amendment piece stands out to me. It, as your reporting would suggest, is Donald Trump fully there mentally? Well, I, I, I can't really make that judgment. But what I can tell you is the people that have raised questions about whether or not he is fully there me- mentally uh, have been the people closest to him. The people that have raised the alarms about what it would be if he came back are the people who are closest to him. And yes, in those hours after the January 6th attack, as they watched what he did and what he didn't do while the, uh, the United States Capitol was under, under assault uh, by his own supporters, it was the people that were closest to him that were talking about whether or not they needed to remove him from office because he was mentally unstable, uh, mentally unable to carry out the duties of the president. And that is Pompeo and Mnuchin. They had both denied it. There is sworn testimony uh, acknowledging that those conversations did happen. They didn't go very far. They didn't have time to go very far. Frankly, as you started to have people resign from the cabinet, there were fewer people in the cabinet that would have voted for it. But they were talking about it. And it's not just uh, those 25th Amendment conversations. I mean, you read that statement from an anonymous staffer. I think it's a very important uh, 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 statement. This was something that was given to me by the person who wrote it. Um, and he wrote it right after uh, all the details came out about the classified documents. This is a very senior official who spent day in and day out with Donald Trump for over a year uh, in the West Wing. I can't get any further details to who it was, but there was a lot of attention about anonymous. We later learned um, uh, was Miles Taylor, uh, worked at the Department of Homeland Security. I will tell you, this is somebody who is more senior and spent a lot more time around Donald Trump, who said those words about him because he saw firsthand uh, how he had operated and was conveying this to me. Didn't want to go public, worried about the retribution that we just talked about. This is not somebody who's been out there publicly taking on the president, worried about retribution against their family, um, but deeply concerned uh, about what a second Trump White House would look like. 
Uh, Jonathan, uh, you know, the the subtitle of your book um, is Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party, yeah. um, which suggests that there's more to this than Donald Trump, whether he is, you know, non-corpus mentis or not, or, you know, wants to use a presidency to, for personal retribution, but also the people around him and who would enable him. Yeah. Is there a Republican Party left that would stop him if he attempted to turn our government into something that looks more like Putin or Viktor Orban? Is there anyone left in the party willing to try to stop him? I mean, I spent a fair amount of time in the book talking about Republicans who did try to rein him in uh, and, and, and did try to stand up for basic norms of American democracy and the Constitution. Some of the names are are, are obvious. They're people like Mitt Romney and, and Liz Cheney. Uh, they're people, if you go a little bit early into his presidency, um, like, like uh, a Senator Flake, Senator Corker. Uh, there are others in the House that are well less well-known. There are people within his own administration. Uh, even, you know, even some of the most hardcore Trump supporters and people like uh, uh, Bill Barr, uh, who stood up to him at the end when it came to uh, standing up for the integrity of, of our election system. Um, so th th there are Republicans who have stood up for him. The issue is that every name I just mentioned to you is essentially gone from the scene. Uh, the members of Congress uh, who voted to impeach him, uh, they, they, by, by the next Congress, I, I believe we're going to see one of them left, just one. Here it is. This is the book. Uh, it is called Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party. The book is out today. It's scary stuff, but Jonathan, thank you for doing this uh, excellent and very necessary reporting. Much appreciated. Thank you, Joy. Up next on The Readout, breaking news out of Gaza. We'll be right back with that. We have breaking news out of Gaza tonight. Israeli defense forces say they are carrying out a military operation against Hamas in a specified area in El Shifa Hospital. This is the same hospital in Gaza City that is facing collapse amid Israeli strikes. NBC News correspondent Jay Gray joins me now from Tel Aviv with the latest. Jay? Yeah, and let's get straight to it. We know that this is the largest, the most technically advanced hospital in Gaza and that troops have been surrounding this area for days, saying that they believe command and control operations as well as weapons and, and ammunition depots are inside the hospital. Troops moving in within the last 30 or 40 minutes, as you said, carrying out a precise and targeted operation in a specific area inside that hospital. The team on the ground, we are told by the IDF, includes medics, Arabic speakers, and that this team has undergone specific training for this mission. So they had prepared for this mission for days, apparently, before deciding to move in. Uh, they're also saying that the hospital staff was informed just before soldiers moved on the facility. And, Joy, we should also point out uh, that they are calling on all Hamas terrorists, and I'm quoting the IDF here, uh, inside the hospital to surrender. So uh, this comes after what's been several days of fighting both outside the hospital, airstrikes around the dense neighborhood surrounding the hospital. Hamas has said repeatedly uh, that there are no operatives or operations inside the hospital complex. Uh, the U.S. today uh, came out and said that their intelligence indicates that Hamas is working not only out of this hospital, but other hospitals in the region as well. Uh, Jay, let me ask you a question. How many civilians, do we have a sense of how many civilians, how many patients and doctors are in that hospital? Because our understanding is they're building mass graves to try to put bodies in because they can't and they can neither leave. They don't want to leave their patients, their babies in incubators, et cetera. How many civilians are in that hospital? 
Yeah, we think thousands. We know that thousands more have left over the last couple of days. And these corridors opened up for several hours by the IDF to move people to the north. So a lot of people have evacuated the hospital, but there still are apparently thousands inside. NBC's Jay Gray, thank you very much. Earlier tonight, after thousands gathered for the March for Israel in Washington, I spoke with two public thinkers about the Israeli-Palestinian debate. Peter Beinart, editor-at-large of Jewish Currents and author of the Beinart Notebook on Substack. And Michael A. Cohen, MSNBC columnist and senior fellow at the Center for Strategic Studies at Tufts University. Thank you both, gentlemen, for being here. Um, Michael Cohen, Michael A. Cohen, I want to start with you first. Um, I found your sure. piece very interesting, and I want to read a little bit of it today. You talk about, um, in your view, those who are calling for a ceasefire um, being incorrect in what they're looking for. And you write, in 1864, as General William Tecumseh Sherman laid siege to the Confederate city of Atlanta, he penned a letter to the residents of the city that he would soon burn to the ground. You cannot qualify war in harsher terms than I will, he wrote. War is cruelty, and you cannot refine it. Those words ring particularly true today. Consider— um, well, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to come back and read another part of it later. But explain to me why you believe that the calls for a ceasefire um, are incorrect. I mean, the bottom line is that after October 7th, Israel, like any country in the world, cannot accept having on its border a Hamas government responsible for the atrocities of October 7th. Um, I think it's simply a case where Israel's right to defend itself has a need to defend itself. I mean, even today, there are still Hamas is still firing rockets into Israel. Two people were injured in Tel Aviv, one seriously hurt. Um, so the, the, this is not the ceasefire is sort of a one sided thing. It's not Hamas has no inclination to stop to stop attacking Israel, stop attacking Jews. They've made very clear they continue. They will continue to do so. So I think, you know, what is imperative is for Hamas to be either eradicated or at least severely weakened. And I do think that one beyond the, the, the need to protect Israel and, and to, uh, uh, you know, end the terrorist threat from Hamas, you know, weakening Hamas or eradicating Hamas creates a political opening, um, a political opening because Hamas has for 30 years tried, you know, worked over overtime to undermine the peace process, to undermine a hope for a two-state solution. With Hamas out of the picture, I think you do create a political opening. And that's where, frankly, I'd like, I like to see pressure put on Israel to move forward on a two-state solution and negotiations with the Palestinian Authority. But until Hamas is wiped out or, or weakened, that can't happen. Um, as long as Hamas remains in power in Gaza, there is no hope for peace. Let me read the second half of it. And if, even if we don't put it up, I'm just going to read it. You said, considering how respected President Joe Biden is in Israel right now, he's precisely the leader who can reassure Israelis that there are, are sacrifices worth making for peace, but those sacrifices won't happen if Hamas remains in power. That is what Michael A. Cohen has said. Peter Beinart, um, I, I understand that you have a different view. So let me ask you what you make of that assessment. So according to Save the Children, more children have been killed in Gaza in this past month than in armed conflict in the entire world in the entire of the last year. So if you're going to say that it's justifiable to kill this many children, it seems to me you have to have really good answers about what the strategy is behind this invasion. I keep on hearing a lot of things. Hamas is going to be eradicated. Hamas is going to be weakened. It's going to be destroyed. We know from America's experience after 9-11, it's easy to get in and depose governments. It's very difficult to get out and stand 
stand out of stand up a government that can stand on its own. If Israel tries to stay in Gaza, it will face an insurgency as far as the eye can see. And that insurgency will be fueled by people whose family Israel has killed, because we know Hamas recruits from bereaved families. If it tries to stand up the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Authority could not control Gaza in 2007. It's far weaker. Israel will have to guard Mahmoud Abbas's office. So if you're going to justify the killing of all these children, you need very good answers. And I haven't heard them. Michael E. Cohen? Well, I mean, I, I think it's important to be clear what's happening in Gaza. I mean, with the, what's happening here is obviously a tragedy. And we are seeing people needlessly dying, including children and, and, and primarily civilians. But that's a decision in, in large extent that Hamas has made in order to use people as human shields to prevent Israel from attacking them. I mean, we're seeing right now this fight happening around the Al-Shifa hospital. Um, you know, why is that happening? Because Hamas uses hospitals as command centers, military command centers. So I, I think we have to be clear that, you know, you, we can blame Israel for this, but Hamas deserves a great deal of responsibility for the carnage that's being unleashed in Gaza. Um, but in general, I, I think that the, sort of the problem I have a little bit with, with Peter's argument is that, you know, no one would have said after 9-11, we shouldn't attack the terrorists who are responsible for, for, for 9-11. Um, you know, right now there is a clear and present threat from Hamas in Gaza. We saw that threat. And the idea that insurgency could be worse than what we saw on October 7th seems a bit hard to imagine. I think right now you know, the focus needs to be on the urgent threat that is coming from Hamas, a threat that we saw on October 7th and that we still see today. We are still seeing rockets fired into Israel. We are still listening to Hamas leaders talk about how this changes nothing from their perspective. They still intend to use Hamas as a, as a launching pad for attacks. It's interesting. Let, let, me, know, let me let when, Peter Israel, in, because we don't have a ton of time. So I want to let Peter uh, get when back When Israel in. went into southern Lebanon to depose the PLO, when they were launching rockets against Israel in the early 1980s, it couldn't imagine anything worse. It got Hezbollah. When the United States went in to depose Saddam Hussein, we couldn't imagine anything worse. We got ISIS. Unless you have a political strategy to create, to deal with the fundamental underlying grievance of the Palestinian people, which are a lack of freedom. You are not creating deterrence in the long run. You're entering a quagmire that is going to leave Israel more wounded and more unsafe than it is today. Well, you're definitely not going to create deterrence if you don't respond to the death of 1,200 of your civilians. I mean, that is There's a different way of responding than this. You can respond in a targeted military way, the way we should have done after 9-11, not by deposing a government and entering a quagmire. Let me I wish we had more time. I, I really appreciate this conversation because I think this is the bottom line, right, is the question of what, what does one do? Um, and there are a lot of people who disagree with what we did after 9-11. Uh, and Joe Biden did counsel that Israel should not do and repeat the exact same thing. So we can debate whether or not that is what Israel is doing. But I appreciate this conversation. Peter Beinart, Michael A. Cohen, thank you both very much. Up next, we'll be right back. Before we go, be sure to check out the readout blog. Jahan Jones explains why Trump and his MAGA minions are using spousal attacks on Jack Smith, Nancy Pelosi and Arthur and Goron. And he breaks down why the self-proclaimed QAnon shaman and other insurrectionists running for Congress is a moral and legal failure for the U.S. And that is tonight's readout. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, 
Kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.